content warning, this podcast contains mentions of suicide, violence, abuse, and genocide. Hi, everyone. And welcome to Queer Sounds, a podcast on queer folks' favorite tunes. My name is Hannah, pronouns they, them. And you know what? It's a little bit weird today because for the first time in, I want to say, eight months, I'm actually in my in my own recording studio again. I used my home setup, but now the studio has been updated. Everything's made COVID-proof, and I am actually in my old home, in my radio studio, and it feels good to be back. Um, a slight difference, though. Because instead of having my guests in the studio with me, I've got a connection with someone far, far away from where I am. Um, and that's Dumi. Hi there. Hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Greetings to your listeners. It's my absolute pleasure. It's been a bit of a ride trying to get our agendas to... Um, to, to to merge to get everything worked out but we finally did it and i'm happy to have you on my show so um why don't you go and introduce yourself a little bit your name your pronouns what you do in daily life who are we dealing with here today greetings everyone my name is dumi i'm also known as dumiso my pronouns are they them there and i am a member of the african queer youth initiative based in botswana currently in the north of the country in a bit of a remote area um so yes uh, it has been a little bit of a challenge in, uh, around scheduling and connectivity and i'm truly excited to be on here all right cool so um before we go talking about you and your music and everything that surrounds your personality, um, what is it that you actually do with your other project, being a coordinator for Success Capital? Thanks, Hannah. Um, so Success Capital was founded on the basis of strengthening the agency and efficacy of young individuals in their diversity and beauty. And um, I think we have been anchored on decolonizing knowledge, uh, strengthening knowledge sharing amongst peers, as well as supporting variant forms of um, civic action. Our primary constituents are young LGBTIQ individuals, and we acknowledge the strength in numbers and diversity, particularly in the most remote areas across Botswana. Uh, we have Pan-African ideals, of course, uh, because we do believe in decolonizing development, philanthropy, and activism, as it's known. So... How do you, what is it that you practically do? Like, um, there, these are some, sounds like some broad um, pillars your NGOs build on, but what, how do you actually manifest that? So, I mean, uh, putting it in a practical sense, it's really quite um, unfabulous. I mean, it's a whole lot of grant writing. So scanning different uh, donor or funding opportunities and trying to figure out if it's a strategic fit. Um, another component of this is having a lot of conversations. Um, if it's not with different government departments, particularly the Ministry of Health and Wellness, um, then it's speaking to traditional leaders and trying to sort of gorge some of the perspectives in how we can improve lives. Um, predominantly, a lot 
lot of work has been uh, within the HIV response, particularly in country, also with strategic litigation, given the fact that 11 June 2019 was the decriminalization year. I think our role has always been complementing beyond uh, the HIV response or the strategic litigation because our people uh, experience significant uh, levels of poverty, underemployment, uh, and violence. And so uh, more notably, under um, uh, COVID precautions and protocols, we were running emergency response services where I was in and out of doctor's consultation rooms. So, um, you know, when someone sits down and asks, you know, what does a day of an activist look like at a grassroots context? Um, I think it really has to do deal with dealing with so many different cycles of violence, you know, whether it's mispronouns or whether it's, you know, having to show your ID when you need something certified and, you know, obviously being addressed because you look otherwise, um, in a, being addressed in an unfortunate manner. So I think it, it, it's really quite a lot. And, and, and in many instances, it's about trying to take advantage of the opportunities that are on the ground. So um, it's quite broad, but um, I must say it really is uh, exciting uh, at sometimes uh, quite exhausting. But I must say this is um, one's life purpose. Um, you mentioned it as a grassroots organization, um, but that kind of conflicts with my image of what an NGO is. Like when it comes to a grassroots organization, I'm thinking of, you know, uh, punks sitting in some kind of squad and planning their their next bit protest. Um, how do you how do you interpret that? Um, so yeah, um, that's a very interesting conversation, and in fact, um, quite a lot of circles have been having that conversation. More notably, um, particularly in trying to understand what grassroots means, um, because I think you know, from our definition, we always understood grassroots um, being uh, not necessarily well institutionalized, not always having resources and infrastructure, yeah, exactly. and um, to a certain extent, um, uh, that ov obviously includes unregistered groups. So that would be you know, feminist collectives or individuals who haven't been able to register their organ organizations. I mean, we came in into existence um, in October 2013 and operated basically for almost two and a half years before we were actually registered um, in, 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 in 2015, in much later 2015. So those are, I think, uh, just some of the things where in that, you know, it's less formal, uh, not as well-funded, obviously, and not necessarily um, uh, well-connected in terms of access to advocacy spaces or core funding. All right. It's, uh, it sounds like we're kind of flipping the script on this one. Um, in a way that, you know, you're bringing NGO literally back to its core definition being, you know, to those unaware, a non-governmental organization, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. But in that sense, you would argue that um, just a small group of activists making uh, signs in, a, in, in some kind of bar also would count as some kind of a less official NGO. Yes, yeah, certainly. That's an you know it's an unregistered group. Um, you're speaking about a collective that has actually come together to effect change, and so obviously it's not you can't call it individuals, but um, you find that there's so many beautiful grant makers who actually want to fund collectives or groups that are similar to that. And, you know, yes, they might not necessarily have audited accounts, but they definitely have the means to be able to effect change. And they're able to then uh, receive some resources to those who are willing to take the risk to fund them. All right. That's actually a pretty cool new insight. Um, however, um, we've been going on for quite a while about this. Let's actually get some music playing. And dear listener, you keep in mind, it's November. Halloween's over which means it's time to get into Christmas. I've already put up my tree myself because, you know, that's what you do on November 1st. But 
let's actually get some music in that same vein as well. Choir of St. John's College of Cambridge arrangement by P. Ledger of, of a Christmas compilation album. Um, I can really tell that I'm putting on my, my classical radio station voice for this one. Um, I personally, not too big on choirs, but there is no disagreeing that th- these arrangements are beautiful. Um, Dumi, lead the way. Why did you particularly choose this track? Um, so one, uh, it's, and I'm super glad that you played that first, um, because this was um, the first song that I sang to audition for a university choir. So I was at the University of Pretoria for my undergraduate, um, and uh, we had to sing a song, and Silent Night was a song. And I think that one audition changed um, the trajectory of my life in so many ways, because I think the ability to have a voice particularly coming from an environment where at the time, you know, we didn't necessarily have like Facebook or like social media. I think only like MySpace was like the most active uh, social media uh, space at the time. And, um, you know, there were so many questions and confusion and not necessarily understanding who I was. Um, And I think, you know, when I look back, um, there was so much violence. And, um, you know, the way that singing had sort of uh, changed the way that I looked at the world, um, I think for me, then really provided a platform for my own voice. I think it gave me such a beautiful exposure because we were then allowed um, to tour, you know, European countries. Um, we were then allowed to actually sort of um, expand uh, learning different cultures, uh, languages uh, through song. And so for me, 
um, you know, when I think about that uh, 11-year-old in that audition, um, it, there was a lot of naivety and there was a lot of innocence and it was really quite beautiful. Um, and I think the song is a reminder of that. Um, and I also think it's just good timing with the fact that we're nearing Christmas. Exactly. So um, I think that's the backstory behind it. <laughs> All right, but you actually got into that choir and then went on tour with that because that's a really cool thing i wasn't aware that you did that um yeah actually uh for a good four years and i remember there was a time um that's when so you know sick. my grades weren't good and i was being threatened with uh having to leave the choir and so forth and i remember i threatened to take my own life um it because that was a space where I could belong and become. Um, that was a space where, you know, young people who were quite different, um, I was already, you know, two years younger than most people. Um, and I think it was a space where I could unravel, the space where I could learn. Um, and I think, you know, because queer folk are just generally attracted to talent, to art, um, uh, so that for me was like a home. And so I can literally see myself standing before that conductor in that audition who was very intimidating and I um i like to think about it about how you know one would have to face the world in that way where it's very intimidating but because you have a song to sing and because i guess there's some strength that's unhidden that you're yet to better understand um yeah it really allowed for me to sort of blossom um throughout those years singing in that choir um uh my guess is that um your love for music didn't start there so how how far does it go? Like, do you remember being like a three-year-old and what songs you were dancing to at the time? <laughs> um, the, okay, yeah, there were, there, were, there were quite a few, I must say. Um, so uh, back in the day, we had this old channel called um, Bob TV. And, um, I, you know, in Botswana at the time, was really quite safe. Um, and I guess there weren't even any questions, you know, around who I am. I think I was just a child. You know, I think the world for me didn't have constructs of gender or race or any other, you know, sort of class or socioeconomic standing. Um, I think for me, the way that I'd always perceived it, was that um, there were so many beautiful artists like Lebo Matosa, beautiful artists like Brenda Farsi, who were just bringing out the fierce in me. And so I definitely loved it. Um, it was quite exciting because I was, you know, the one child. Firstly, I was a firstborn. So the first one is often, um, I guess, revered um, to some extent and really loved by, you know, family, extended family members. So during Christmas, I was the one who'd always sort of hold the party because I'd be the one dancing. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it was quite an exciting time. I, f I feel like a lot of people out there will find that relatable. Um, what I'm kind of taken by surprise by is that you were, you're, you're kind of peppering in some little bits about violence. You talk about it so lightly. How, uh, how do you do that? Like, it sounds like it hardly um, ever made any impact on you personally. Yeah, um, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, the journey of activism. So uh, um, in my early adult years, I, I had been working, um, so very corporate, um, and activism was more of a pastime passion. And so I think um, having veered, or rather, let me say, being forced um, to be in activism full time, you then learn that there are certain things that, um, in as much as storytelling is very important um, in advocacy work, you then learn that certain things have got such a strong hold on you up until you're actually able. Well, people are obviously different, but I think my healing process had always been about helping and serving others, but I didn't 
didn't know how to be that same person for myself, particularly because that younger self wasn't there. Um, so I think, you know, uh, sometimes you then get to a point where um, you not only sort of accept and come to terms with certain uh, pasts, right? Um, but you then realize within the context of not just yourself, right? Because I think from an African culture perspective, you know, for instance, you know, it takes a child to raise a village. I mean, sorry, it takes a village raise to raise a child. Yeah. Um, you know, or the principle of Ubuntu, you know, I am because you are. You then realize that um, there's a far much bigger story. And so in as much as I uh, believe um, and, and I will say that, you know, for a long time, I actually didn't know that I had survived certain atrocities up until I actually got to a point where I had the knowledge and that, oh, that wasn't okay. So for me, abuse felt very normal because it was just around me. Then realizing that, you know, the history within your own family, you know, when, for instance, having a grandparent who was a domestic worker, um, you then realize and learn that, you know, this was part of that legacy. And in order to break that legacy, you need to bring um, uh, the truth out, right? You need to bring light. And that light comes with a lot of healing. And um, I think it then becomes um, a bit easier to sort of come. And it's a process. I must be honest, it's a process. I don't think it's it happens overnight. Yeah, but no, you get exactly. to a point where you realize, you know, sharing one story is possibly, you know, the most powerful thing. And, it's, um, and, and it shouldn't be something that's of shame. Because I come from a culture where we are not allowed to speak about these things and we have to keep quiet and um, we shouldn't be uh, putting, you know, the, putting out the laundry for everyone to see. And so I think for me, I then found power in my own voice, especially because I did not know that some of these things actually happened, whether it's to myself or within my family. And so being able to speak truth to that power means that I'm able to affirm and strengthen, you know, that same voice that I didn't necessarily have up until that one audition. All right. So um, the way you're talking about it now, it sounds like, um, to, to summarize a little bit, you kind of got desensitized to it all, like you weren't aware that all of the bad things around you were actually bad things. And as soon as you uh, realized that that was that, that that there was so much horrible things going on, singing kind of gave you a, a a way to vent or some kind of distraction. Is that is that a right way to summarize it? No, I, I think it's it's more about heightened awareness. Um, I think you know sometimes when we're going through something, um, I think you know sometimes. You know, when you're looking back or reflecting, you then ask yourself, like, how is it possible? How could someone, you know, be able to go through all of that? Um, you know, whether it's naming and shaming, how can someone be able to go through abuse? Um, how could someone you know, be able to go through so much bullying and still be of sound mind. Yes, you know, you always see the signs in terms of maybe poor academic performance. You see the signs in terms of um, maybe emotional instability, if there's such a thing. But I, I see it as a heightened awareness, as a certain consciousness of recognizing more structural things or issues, such as harmful norms. And, and, and for me, how this came about, like I was saying, you know, is when someone came and shared um, how they were put up against the wall and i think you know in having actually been shocked not just uh off of what had happened to that individual and that happened to be you know one of a good friend of, of mine um you know i i think for me it then became uh, an, a, certain, a sense of awareness in that um in as much as you can be a naive and in as much as you can be of good faith um there will always be you know harm and violence around you and 
it's critical and important for people to be equipped with knowledge and it's important for people to understand. So I, I, I would say it's really more heightened awareness that comes with exposure. It's heightened awareness that comes with um, being able to have a voice and being able to actually question because it's not just about speaking truth to power. It's about question and continuously relearning and unlearning. So I, I really think it's more about awareness and then being able to own that power. This is all going very fast for me. Um, I'm going to have one more question before we dive into the next track, which is um, when did this process occur to you? And like, when did this when did this kick in? Because at some points I'm thinking, okay, this sounds like such a such an extensive change when it comes to thinking about things like you must have been in your 20s. But I also wouldn't be surprised if you said that this all happened around when you were 10 and started to sing. Um, so, yeah, so definitely uh, uh, it happened in, in, in later years. Um, I mean, I got to university at the age of 16. Um, wow. And so I, I, I recall having told myself that I'll never become um, who I was in high school. Now, I didn't know what that meant or what that was. Um, and this is why, you know, in starting to have conversations around abuse, in starting to have, I mean, we were in post-apartheid South Africa. So we're talking about an environment that was very vibrant on democratic issues, on human rights, on on, you know, for instance, fees must fall, movements and so forth. So I think, you know, being surrounded by individuals who are obviously vocal, individuals who understood what agency is, a country that had a very recent history of atrocities, um, you know, it, it became so much more easy to have those kinds of conversations because you're now around, you're, you know, you're in a learning environment and people are bound to have a lot of conversations. So I think, you know, that process sort of started um, uh, particularly, um, I think, in the very first, you know, conversation that I had, um, you know, a, a few things just sort of started um, unpacking themselves. And so, you know, during that very particularly that first year um, of varsity, I was having a lot of conversations with my choir friends, you know, some who whose parents were active apartheid activists, as in they had lost siblings, um, they had experienced what it was like for their parents to be taken while they were children. And so for me, um, in, in sort of having those kinds of conversations and then sort of reflecting on my own, um, I then realized very quickly, you know, in certain things that were sort of organically coming up that oh my word that that should not have happened um that that was not okay and i never actually really ever thought about it up until i got into that kind of an environment so i think you know just being socialized within that vastly different environment as compared to Botswana obviously opened my mind to so many different things and allowed for me to learn so many different issues and that's what sort of sparked my activism um, I think we could all use a breather, uh, so it's about time to get into our queer artist spotlight of this episode. It's a name that's actually been dropped a little bit earlier this episode. It's Brenda Fassi.
There we go. Brenda Fassi, Noma Kanjani, off of the album of the same title, released in 1991. Like, this person is such a roller coaster. Um, I think, wasn't she the one that was nicknamed something like... Um, uh, she she had some kind of uh, very impressive nickname, or something like the lesbian African Madonna, something like that. <laughs> I mean, she was amazing. Like, look, I, it, well, she had many titles, I must say, um, but but she was amazing. She was a game changer, um, especially looking at the, the the context and the time when she started out. Um, and I think the song was such a beautiful accumulation of so many different facets about her life, um, and even just my own. I think um, it, it 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 highlighted so many. You know, if I if I can translate some of the things, you know, um, when they're telling. You know, and, and so there's, there's a lady who shouts and she's saying, you know, they're saying you're ugly. They're saying you've got a big nose. Um, they're saying you don't bath. Um, and, you know, and, and, and she's just like, I don't care. You know, I'm in love with this person. And, um, you know, it's just a, a journey. You know, even uh, her, 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 her fellow singer uh, sings something along the same lines. And, you know, I think during this time was, I think, at the height of her controversy. Um, obviously, there were lots of tabloids at the time. And um, uh, I think it was a couple of years later that's when there were revelations that she's lesbian or bisexual and you know she was very unapologetic and i think the beauty about uh, brenda fossey really resonates with me because she was very strong um and resilient and i think uh even in her vulnerabilities and even in instances when she was quite low um she was very revealing of what it means to truly be black what it means to be african and what it means for solidarity and so i think you know this song really resonates with my with with so many different um, layers and levels of just uh, belonging and becoming in a world that is complex, in a world that consistently targets you. Um, and, you know, in environments where you possibly can't even escape those cycles of harm. Yeah. Um, so a little bit of a background information about this artist. Um, she is from South Africa. Uh, I mean, obviously talking 1990s here, so that's all slightly post-apartheid. And she passed away of an overdose, if I'm not mistaken, um, back in 2000 and something, 2006. I'm pretty certain she was also largely involved with a lot of the uh, apartheid activism, wasn't she? Um, yeah, actually, she sang Black President. Um, so I think while Nelson Mandela was still in jail, she then sort of produced that song. Um, I think, you know, it's important to then also put it in context, right? Um, so you had the likes of like Winnie, uh, sorry, not Winnie, um, Mariam, um, uh, Mariam Makeba, sorry. Um, and Mariam Makeba obviously was very famous for Pata Pata and a lot of other songs, but was in exile for 30 years. And so some of the more palatable artists, um, particularly, you know, when Brenda Fossey had initially started in her earlier years you know she was very a very pop artist not necessarily singing african songs because at some point um in apartheid south africa african songs were banned because they were perceived to be political um and so i think you know everyone sort of had a role to play and hers was quite significant um, in helping individuals to escape and then obviously being really quite prominent um, in as and I think a lot of things sort of changed in 1976 um, when the youth uprisings in Soweto um, had uh, had uh, you know caught the attention of the world um, and, and and you know the beauty about how you know youth-centric she was and how consistently game-changing she was at the time um, and it's important because you know despite the fact that um, you know uh, 
Southern Africa or the rest of Africa um, possibly had, you know, uh, jurisdiction or country-specific artists. I think, you know, somehow South Africa obviously has always had quite a, a prominent role um, in terms of cultural influence in other regions. I mean, it's a country with uh, 11 official languages and there's a 12th uh, where, which gained prominence um, in the mining towns or mining areas during those times. And so uh, Brenda Foster really was quite a revolutionary in that she uh, appealed not just to South Africa, but um, to other, you know, neighboring countries. And she was like, she was uncontrollable. I think that was the best uh, beauty <laughs> of autonomy. But more importantly is that there were so many lessons to be learned around liberation and what that should look like um, and how expression can be freely um, uh, empowering. But even within that light, can still attract so much um, uh, attention and, and, and unfavorable treatment. But I think, you know, she she was one person who inspired a lot of queer folks um, and, and inspired, uh, inspired a lot of other queer icons as well, because um, yeah, she's a force. I mean, these were songs that we were dancing to in my childhood when we'd visit Zimbabwe, um, visiting my grandmother. So I, I like for me, it's just like, wow, it brings up, it brings back so many memories. Can you name some examples of your memories? Like, take us down your your path of your your own queer coming to terms, living your truth. So my grandmother likes hoarding things, and so there are all these. Uh, there's all this china, and and um, you know, there are all these different like very antique vintage things, and you know, scattered across are all these photos of different family members. And um, as I mentioned, because I was the firstborn, most of those photos are of me. Um, and you know, when I look at all the photos, they are very. Oh my gosh, dramatic. Like, I don't even know where to start. You know, like, um, I think, you know, in terms of posing and fierceness, that can already be detected from like age four. Um, uh, and even just in the, in, you know, the way that I would have dressed, um, it was just very different. Um, and, and you can see that it's it's reflected in the photos. And I always remember driving from Khabarone, the capital city of, of, of Botswana, to Zimbabwe, which takes like a whole day. Um, and those were the moments when, you know, Brenda Foster would be playing. Um, and so it was such a beautiful time then because um, there was a lot of freedom, there was a lot of expression, and there was a lot of Brenda Farsi. Like, it was just fantastic. Um, and I think, you know, that 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 sort of always stayed with me for a very, very long time up until I just started, you know, sort of um, learning what adulting looks like. Um, but at that point, it sounds like you were pretty free to kind of do whatever you want. Was there a moment where you also had some issues when it comes to, for example, forced gender roles? You know, I, I had always been told by relatives that my parents had wished for their firstborn to be a girl. And um, even my nickname, Dudu, happens to be one that um, is attributed mostly to girls. Um, so I think, you know, for a long time, it... it, it, it they, they, there was a lot of, um, like I said, I didn't know that there was a difference, particularly around issues of gender, up until a point where obviously you go to school and then there's certain things that are, you know, there's certain roles that have to be played or certain roles that have to be boxed. And, um, you know, in as much as I would say I would have been confused. I think it was just a place of complacence. I wasn't different. I didn't know the difference. I think um, for a large portion of both, um, you know, child and adolescent years, um, there are certain blocks that, you know, aren't memorable. Um, and, and I've always, you know, never wanted to feel like that's a Pandora's box that I should touch. Um, 
knowing full well what might be there. But more importantly, I think in those, you know, those memories that I can recollect and in those memories and times where, you know, they're significant um, uh, touch points with ancestry or significant touch points with, I guess, um, the wishes of parents. Um, I would say in adolescence where there would be conflict and you'd be sitting there and you'd try and figure out, but there is no information. You don't know anything. Um, and, you know, like I was saying, you know, the internet was something that was quite abstract. Phones weren't really developed then yet. Um, and there was like no social media. So there was nowhere to turn to. There was no one to be asking questions. Um, I think what I what, what I did sort of see, particularly in more adolescent years, when I was able to sort of question, um, was how other children who are possibly more effeminate, how other children who are a little bit more different to myself, um, were targeted, and it was not beautiful. Um, right. And so, to a, you know, I, and I can even recollect to a certain extent where I was quite uh, not pleased, but I was almost happy that it wasn't me, um, and I wasn't aware, or I didn't necessarily know what it was that made me um, a little less of a target compared to them. What uh, you mentioned that was that there was um, hardly any sources of information you could turn to. Um, how did you? <laughs> ended up making it happen like how did you find the language to describe your truth um so it was during that first year in university and only in choir spaces so that would be either during rehearsal or um in july we actually had a european tour we went to austria germany and um italy and um, I remember vividly one of my friends um, actually commenting on, um, I think uh, he was commenting on another boy, and I was shocked. I was I was flabbergasted. I didn't understand what was going on. Um, in fact, I even laughed. And um, I went to, you know, my closest of friends, and I was laughing like crazy and telling them, you know, what was happening. And... Um, you know, even my friends were just like, yeah, no, we understand, my friend. Yes, we, we, we are with you, you know. And, you know, I, I think it took like maybe two weeks or so for me to then like actually sit down. And then I, I, I spoke to my friend, um, but more, I think, in terms of wanting to explore. So, yeah, the information definitely wasn't there. It's not like there was anything to be able to Google. But um, I think... You know, in those two weeks, I then could recollect so many things. Like Hannah, it was, it was so weird how it sort of, you know, pieced together. Like, so I remember the very first every... poster that I had was of Asha, and Asha liked, you know, sort of obviously, you know, having the six pack out there and stuff. Right. And that was like the first poster that I had, um, in my room. I think when I was like five or six. Um, and then I remember there was a day when, um, my dad uh was insisting that i shouldn't watch um adult content if i can say that um that's after having you know gone through um his work computer and so it was like it's, it was just so many interesting little points like that right, where yeah. it was like oh okay so that's what it is you know so i think you know somehow i didn't i couldn't name 
anything, but um, there were consistent reminders. And I mean, the ones that I mentioned were beautiful reminders. Um, there were obviously those that were, you know, uh, bull bullying. There were those that were, you know, borderline hate speech and so forth. But I think those were like the beautiful reflection points in those two weeks after um, my one friend had mentioned that comment or just said that. Um, I just, you know, I was just like, oh, okay, oh, okay, you know. Um, so, yeah, I think... Uh, it had always been hidden a little bit, but um, because I didn't have the naming, I didn't have the framing, I didn't even know that I could ask a question, it was blank, you know, even in instances where, you know, we had pen pals and things like that, I was just literally... Um, blank to be quite honest there was no there was no such thing as a love interest um i can confess to crushes but um yeah so um it kind of sounds like you took everything as it comes and from there you only started to question things the moment other people explicitly started questioning things about you is that is that a way to put it um let me say i was oblivious the entire time. Oh, yeah, until, that's relatable. That's yeah. hella relatable. So, so not necessarily, you know, when when people were doing that all the time, but it's just that when there was a, I guess, maybe an affirming and an enabling space that um, it wasn't intentional, but that was really quite organic in revealing itself. So obviously, I don't think, because those were like the first six months of choir. Um, so no one really was, you know, we weren't really that personal. We're only ever meeting twice a week and we're under a grueling, you know, rehearsal schedule. So there was never really a time to really properly connect with individuals, aside from instances where we'd have like maybe like choir camp or we would be together for an extended time to make sure that we're able to meet our schedule. And so I think it was just, it happened to be that. Um, we're in an enabling environment and I think you know in, as Oprah says you know the little voice in you um, had consistently been there and obviously those of others but I think the fact that I was just very oblivious and just didn't know and just wasn't exposed you know up until a point where I guess um, I would say maybe possibly even the universe allowed for me to be in that space. What do you remember the specific moment in which for you kind of the penny dropped? Yeah. Um, so it's it's literally when my one friend was like, oh, that guy's cute. And I was just like, what? And I laughed. So it, it <laughs> okay, was there, yeah. you know, literally in that moment. I just laughed and I just ran off and laughed, you know. So I think that was it where it was like, you know, the inner fierce just came out and was just like, girl, it's time. It's like such a such a sudden release of tension. Like, that's a thing people <laughs> <Exactly>. can think. <laughs> like, I'm allowed to think that? Oh, that's such a relief. And then everything just kind of starts pouring out. And it, it doesn't exactly. sound like a type of laughter where you make fun of him. It sounds like a type of laughter where you kind of almost kind of panicky like there are so many emotions going on you know don't really yes. know what to do with it yes and it's it's just like it's 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 like a wave and it just hits you and you're just like oh my god so this is how you know and 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 then it takes obviously it takes time to process but it's like this wave and you just feel like oh my god even though i didn't say anything there's just this you know this 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 weight lifted off of my shoulders all right um oh that's this is such a fun story um but i think it's about time we get into track number three this is one kind of crossing the borders between pop and 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 opera uh we all know the original version uh you might also know this version i hadn't heard of it before but that's just because i didn't do my homework anyway i'm rambling here is aretha franklin nessun
An astounding version of Nessun Dorme by Aretha Franklin. Such a phenomenal vocalist. Um, and you, Dumi, got the uh, privilege of having this scene happen live. Is that correct? Um, oh, no. Um, if, if, you know, if there's one thing that about my childhood is that it didn't have concerts. Um, and so, you know, in many instances, we'd have to obviously watch on television. And now we've got the privilege of, for instance, streaming and YouTube and so forth. But um, uh, my childhood definitely did not have any performances. Um, or rather, let me say, live performances or concerts. Um, and I think, you know, one thing behind the song particularly, and, and in fact, even the performance, is that um, it was last minute. So Bavarotti was actually supposed to perform. And um, I think, you know, caught a cold or there was something wrong and couldn't actually perform. And she was then asked to stand in. And so you can imagine, I mean, the immense amount of talent that one has to have um, and, and, and how versatile, you know, that one has to have in terms of being able to deliver. And um, I think for me, this is the one performance that I could relate to, um, not just for, you know, being on stage and having voice um, and the classical undertones, of course, but um, more because of the story is that, you know, in many instances or many moments of our lives, we have to pitch and we have to be there. And um, this has definitely dominated most of my childhood and young uh, adult years. Um, it hasn't always been, I guess, the most structured or beautiful picture, but um, it is one that has often required one to make sure that they perform. And I remember just one of the conversations that we had, you know, when we we're having discussions um, or the earlier discussion, um, before this, uh, you know, just speaking about, you know, some of the challenges or nuances of having to perform poverty within the context of activism or having to perform struggle. And, you know, those being issues that I was, uh, I think, adamantly against for a very, very long time. Um, but now knowing that um, there's just so much power um, in being able to uh, to pitch and to be there um, and to have a voice and to, 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 to claim that space, even if it wasn't meant for you. How do you do you have a favorite song to perform yourself, considering you've been in the choir? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, there are quite a few. Um, uh, the most prominent one that I can recollect is Eric Whitaker, her Sacred Spirit Soars, um, and it's American composer. And, um, you know, the beauty about that is that we always had to actually um, stand 
in we were not allowed to stand in the same voice groups so um because i was a tenor i wasn't allowed to stand with any other tenor right yeah. and um that meant you had to get your tone right you had to get the pitch right you had to get the words right and so it you know for me it just brought about the best i think in terms of singing um in terms of being able to deliver and just being able to have fun i think that was the best part about it all having nice. fun all right there's one more thing that i want to touch upon because um I feel like this is something that we want to talk about, and if we don't do it now, we won't have time to put it in, in, in the rest of the episode. Um, but uh, your main uh, your main thing, something that must be mentioned here, is the African Queer Youth Initiative. So take us uh, take us on that ride. What what is it? What do you do there? So the African Queer Youth Initiative is a collective of um, young activists across the African continent. Um, if I recollect correctly, it's the only queer um, uh, mechanism, institution, organization that is representative of all five regions, inclusive of North Africa, because normally they just include sub-Saharan Africa. Right. Yeah. And um, I think the beauty about it is the fact that obviously, yes, it's young um, and that we're able to eliminate some of these barriers of um, institutional power, gatekeeping, and um, sort of explore and unravel. I mean, I was previously the Human Rights Task Force Chair, and so we had made representations before the African Commission on Human and People's Rights. And um, I think for me, um, the beauty is in, you know, sort of understanding what organizing looks like, particularly in other regions, or especially when, you know, other countries are in crisis mode and there's an appeal for help. And we're often there to support each other and try find ways or solutions where we can link and bridge with other activists across the region. So um, I really value and love the fact that African Queer Youth Initiative represents something that is founded or, you know, the very basis of Success Capital's existence, the very basis of young people taking space and trying to exercise agency and autonomy in very repressive and challenging African contexts. So give us a little bit of a taste as to what you've already accomplished. Like what are some uh, accomplishments you're most proud of? Um, I think, you know, having our very first um, AGM um, was really probably the most biggest thing that we had um, in 2019. Um, this is because, you know, a lot of youth organizations aren't well funded. And because African Queer Youth Initiative isn't uh, registered in a specific lo uh, location, that means that, you know, obviously uh, finding uh, the tools of enablement, whether it's resources or even just the ability to hire staff has been a bit of a challenge. But the beauty of being able to be housed, for instance, in Tears, Nigeria, um, as a, a, a basically as an infrastructural support um, uh, organization in uh, Nigeria for AQII has allowed us to then be able to have an AGM to be able to make, um, I, I guess, good knowledge outputs. I mean, we have a digital safety website and um, we have quite a few other uh, uh, tools. Um, one of the more exciting activities, and this is quite regular um, and had actually started just before COVID um, precautions were webinars, you know, And so ensuring that there's some knowledge sharing, ensuring that, you know, um, we're able to not just expand within the context of the collective intellectually, but also ensure that that is shared across other young people and other young networks. Um, so why the decision to focus on Africa as a continent? Wouldn't it be a lot easier or um, wouldn't it already be enough work in and of itself to just focus on um, Motswana issues? 
Um, look, I think, you know, within the context of decolonization, we acknowledge that there are pan-African ideals and that it's really quite critical for us to acknowledge that uh, the struggle that's in Botswana is very similar, for instance, to the struggle that's in Namibia, um, not just because they're former Commonwealth countries, but because they still carry uh, colonial legacies. Um, these colonial legacies, not just reflected in terms of criminalization, but also in terms of, you know, harmful gender norms, um, harmful uh, traditional uh, structures and nuances and uh, uh, I guess impositions on queer expression and I think it's very critical for uh, solidarity you know in understanding that um, the liberation of queer folks in Botswana is just as important and as critical as those in Nigeria and Ethiopia yeah okay but you know I I, I haven't found them myself but I know that there are uh, for example also queer initiatives in, uh, in, in, in Kenya for example or, or Somalia and wouldn't it give more of an overview to actually uh, collaborate with those uh, organizations as a fellow local organization instead of trying to focus on the entire? It's, uh, let me let me reframe this question a little bit. It just sounds like it's very overwhelming feeling the pressure of um, fighting for their rights over an entire continent. Um. I think generally activism is quite overwhelming um, because in as much as, yes, for instance, decriminalization occurred in Botswana, it does not necessarily mean that there's equality. It does not, it does not necessarily mean that um, there is equity in the way people are being treated. Um, it doesn't mean that um, the lives have improved because there's a change in law. And I think this is really quite critical. Um, even just looking at South Africa, in terms of its constitution and its law, um, it's then uh, there are social limitations. Um, stigma and discrimination still exist where equality courts aren't always approachable. So I think, you know, there's so many lessons to learn just from it and also just sort of trying to get back to those pan-African ideals um, in being able to recognize solidarity and again, the spirit of Ubuntu. All right, everyone. Um, so apparently, Dumi lost our connection, which is... Too bad because you know we feel like we were having a fun conversation, really insightful, learning a lot of new things. Um, I hope you are too. But sometimes things don't always go the way you hope they go. And with that, I'm afraid we have to cut this episode a little short. I hope things will go better next time. I might give an update and do me whenever we're able to reconnect. Um. But until then, I'm just gonna close off with the last song they picked. And um, I hope you'll listen next time. So if you like this podcast, you can financially support it uh, through patreon.com slash queersounds. Because, you know, considering our connectivity issues, you know we need to um, invest in some better ways to do this. Patreon.com slash queersounds. If you, enjoy, uh, if you enjoy the music, you can uh, check out the Queer, uh, Queer Sounds playlist uh, over on Spotify. Just look for Queer Sounds playlist, you'll find it. Uh, and get in touch through our socials. We're having lots of fun there. Um, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, at Queer Sounds Pod on all of those things. Um, you know, we can pick an album of the week, that type of stuff. Uh, it's all good fun. Tell a friend if you like the show. And we'll see you next time. And to close off, Nadia Uhuru by Letta Mbulu.
Yeah.